the following audio is from a sermon series entitled The Mystery of Marriage. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. There are a few times in my life, and, and I think that this is probably a, a shared experience for many people, right, where you set out to do a project, some kind of project, you know, working on a car, doing a yard project, maybe a sewing project, I don't know, you know, Pinterest. You set out to do a project, and at the beginning of this project, it seems like a good idea, right? Sounds like a, a noble use of my time and my resources, something that, that's maybe going to add value to my life, maybe be enjoyable along the way. Uh, and one of the, the instances that, that I think about um, that comes to mind with, with this idea of a project uh, was when we, I became a, a homeowner a few years ago. Um, I had this neighbor who was very welcoming uh, of us to our neighborhood, but he was also very nosy. Uh, and, and he did not refrain to point out to me all of the patches in my lawn that were not actually grass but weeds. Uh, and, and so I felt like the responsible thing to do as a homeowner would be to take this burden upon myself and really strive for a healthy, lush, green lawn. Uh, and to be honest with you, I couldn't tell that they were weeds. They looked like grass to me. But, but I thought that, you know, okay, I'll, I'll step into this. And so as you do, you get going on a project, and inevitably you're going to experience some sort of setbacks. Right? Things aren't necessarily going to go as planned. Maybe you have the wrong tool or there's an extra step involved and you basically have to go back and start over. There's always something, some sort of a hiccup like this. Now, now for me, this hiccup was the simple fix of using grass killer, or not grass killer, uh, but weed killer. Right, spraying down my, my lawn, and, and, and what I found is that, that that solution did not actually work. And so I'm thinking, well, this obviously is grass. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, and so, uh, but I, I was committed to this project, so I, I didn't back down. And so I went out, I got some Roundup, you know, and just, just killed the whole patch. And I sprayed those patches of grass-like weeds. And, 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 you know, usually when you get to this point in some sort of a project, you're pretty committed, right? You, you're saying, I, I've committed this project. There's no turning back now. But with my experience in projects like this, you, you'll eventually come to a point of questioning. And you're, you're wondering, the question is, is this even worth it? Right? Is this worth my time? Is the payoff going to be equal to or greater to the effort and money or time that I'm sinking into this project? And, and I found myself asking that question when I was taking a, a spade and shoveling off about an inch or two worth of topsoil trying to get rid of this brown dead patch that I had. If you don't believe me, the week that I did this, you know how Google Earth has those cars with cameras on top? Google Earth drives by my yard, and you see about a dozen big dirt patches spread throughout my yard. Absolutely ridiculous. And I'm wondering here, I'm looking back at this in hindsight, and I actually replanted some grass seed this week. I'm thinking here, what have I gotten myself into? Is this, is this worth it? What's the point of this project? And, and I think, if we're honest, most couples have or will experience the same sort of pattern within their marriage at some point. At some point, you're going to wonder, is this worth it? 
Because at, at the onset of marriage, you're thinking, oh, this, this is going to be a lot of fun, right? I, I love this person. I'm in love with this person. I, I see the future. It's going to be awesome and a great time. And we sort of have this idyllic ver- vision of what marriage is going to be like. And we think that this is going to make us really, really happy that, in a sense, my wildest dreams are going to come true. And to reinforce this mentality, there's the honeymoon. And I think one of the things that honeymoon does is set our expectations pretty high for marriage. Because we think, you know, we're on the beach of Mexico. We've got the free drinks, the free food. We're dancing. There's romance. It's just a lot of fun. No responsibilities. And you think, oh, this is what marriage is like. Why did we wait so long? But then there's a glitch. There's a setback. At some point... There's something that happens that seems to upset the whole relational ecosystem. Now, this might come in the first real week of marriage, right, post-honeymoon. Or maybe this comes 10 or 20 years down the road. It might be something huge, monumentous issue. Or maybe it's just a bunch of small things that are sort of compiled together and you finally hit the breaking point. Right? Where that's, that point is where happiness is Disrupted, And in some cases, things get hard, like, like really hard. Sometimes it seems too hard, and, you, and you, you can't help. That question comes up, is it worth it? What's the, what's the point of this? Why can't I just be happy? And with that, that drought of happiness, those questions all unfold. Now, the question here, like, what's the point? What's, what, what, why marriage? I think that's a good question. I, I think it's one of the best questions and a question that really should be asked in premarital counseling before you get to the point where things are really, really hard and you're just kind of at wit's end and you don't know how to, how to even uh, think about that in a meaningful way. But most people, I would imagine, have never really thought about what the purpose of marriage is in advance. I mean, obviously, we think of it from a practical standpoint. Marriage provides a stable context for raising kids. But beyond that, what's the point of marriage? What's it about? And I think we tend to operate out of the assumption that the chief purpose of marriage is to make me happy. Right, there's this truism, and honestly, if you go on Pinterest, you'll find it everywhere, right? It's be with the one who makes you happy. But happiness, or the way that we tend to think of it, is too fragile. It's, it's too fleeting to be the purpose of marriage. And so what we see, what we're going to see today, that that the purpose of marriage isn't less than being happy, right? Married people aren't meant to be miserable. That's not what I'm trying to say here. But the purpose of marriage isn't less than being happy. It's more than that. And so today we're midway through a sermon series on marriage. and, And what I'm doing, I'm trying my best to equip you and help you with your marriage or future marriages from a biblical perspective. Because my hope is that we are all in a pursuit of healthy, gospel-centered marriages that are equally and radically committed as they are passionate. Now, 
couple last weeks, I'm not going to revisit all of this. I don't have time for that. Uh, you can check out the podcast. But we talked about the problem of marriage, right? One of the biggest problems of marriage is our own self-centeredness. But God, in marriage, graciously uses our self-centeredness against us for our good. Then we moved into the, the definition and the priority of marriage, that marriage is a, a covenant relationship. Between one man and one woman, they're, they're united as one. And today we're going to tackle this question, what is the purpose? What is the point of marriage? I think when we grap, grasp this idea, the purpose of marriage, what it does, it gives us, it unfolds a dimension of marriage that most people are oblivious to. So we're going to jump into Ephesians chapter 5, and really where, where we're kind of putting our roots down today are in verses 25 through 27. So if you want to open your Bible with me, there's a pew Bible in front of you. It's on page 569, or the, word, the, the scripture will be up on the screen. I, I like to just read this, Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, we've seen over the last few weeks how the Apostle Paul shows that marriage and the gospel sort of move together in tandem. They're, they're so correlated that, in fact, the end goal of marriage and the gospel are one and the same. Now, think of this. Jesus doesn't live the perfect life, die a substitutionary death, raise victorious over the grave just to put a smile on your face. The gospel is bigger than that. He's not just trying to make you happy. He, it, it's bigger than a sentimental expression or adopting a positive outlook on life. The purpose, the point of the gospel was for God to send Jesus to save sinners and to sanctify us. That's, verse, that's language used in verse 26. What's that mean, sanctify us? It means to cleanse us, to make us holy without blemish. In other words, it's to make us like God is. Now, I think I think there is a default alarm in most of our heads that goes off when we hear the word holy. This is what it sounds like. Boring. Right? Holiness. It sounds like something for, sorry guys, it sounds like something for old people. You know what I mean? Like seriously, 20, 30, 40 year old people, like something later on in life. I don't mean any offense by that, by the way. I think that this is, this is the mentality that we have, though. Right? I think that there is a, a, 
a caricature, a mental caricature in our minds of some uptight, legalistic, judgy, naggy grandma that's just wagging her finger all the time. You should do better. And I think this is a huge misconception. Absolutely terrible. And I think that this is one of the ways that Satan keeps people disinterested with things that pertain to God. Because who would want to be holy if that's what it's like? Who would want anything to do with God if that's what he's like? Not me. I hope not you. If that's what you want to be like, if that's your version of holiness, this probably is not going to be the church for you. Because that is not the Bible's definition of holiness. The the Bible offers a vision of holiness that's more robust. It's more awe-inspiring. It's it's imagination-provoking. See, to be holy means to live to your full potential through Christ. It means to be fully human and wildly magnificent. It's where all of your blemishes, all of the ugly bits about you get removed so nothing but beauty shines through. Where spots and wrinkles are gone. Not just covered up, but gone, vanished. Now, I've been trying to practice some self-control in limiting my football uh, illustrations. And it's been really hard, guys. Because I tend to lose ladies when I start talking about football. You know, and I don't want to lose the ladies here. And so I'm going to, I'm going to go on your turf, all right? And give me some grace here as I move into this. I'm, I'm going to try a, a cosmetics illustration. Now, just, just imagine for a moment, you're working for a company, they're shooting a promo video, uh, and, and you've been selected at random to be in this, you know, advertisement. And this particular shoot is going to be something that's really up close and tight to your face, right? Something, something where it's, it, there's really not a lot of forgiveness. Now, just think, if, if that's what sets before you, that sort of examination, how diligent you'd have to be in applying your makeup that day. Because, like, this isn't just a video that pops. Like, you make a video and it sits on the Internet for a long time. You get your foundation, your concealer, your blush, your eyeshadow, eyeliner, mascara, lipstick. You, I had to Google all that. <laughs> but that's apparently what ladies do. Now, if you have perfect skin, there's no problem. But nobody on the face of the earth has perfect skin. There's always some sort of blemish. And sometimes, depending on stress or whatever, you might be breaking out. or extra splotchy. Apparently, that's a thing, too. And so what you do, you spend more time in front of the mirror trying to conceal, trying to cover up the blemishes. But there's still this sense of like, it's, it's, not, it's not perfect. You know, it looks better, but it, it's not getting rid of the blemishes. Now holiness, in the context of this very uncomfortable illustration for me, would mean that all of your blemishes aren't just covered up. But they vanish. Gone. That's what holy is. There's no need for concealer. 
There's no need to do contrast work to get rid of your, your double chin or your jaw lines. See, but this illustration breaks down because holiness isn't just about a physical appearance. Right? I, think, I think that is part of it, right? To be radiant and splendid. But holiness gets deep, deep, deep down and causes a transformation that is unlike anything else. Right? You, you've probably seen those. Uh, it used to be a big thing, like the, the, the makeover shows, right, or like on talk shows or whatever. They've got a makeover segment. You get people off the street, and, and they spend like a few hours doing a make, makeover, and you can barely recognize them from their before and after photos. Right? Such incredible transformation is taking place. But what happens in the gospel, what happens is that Jesus transforms us that goes way deep down further to the soul. In fact, that's actually where the work of the gospel begins, from the inside out, where Jesus begins making us radiant, our hearts, our souls radiant. He reorients our hearts. He, he drives out the character flaws. He, he helps us fight the besetting sins. He replaces those temptations with virtue. See, to be holy means that we are made radiantly beautiful, intoxicatingly gorgeous, beaming with glory and splendor. And when you think of holiness this way, it puts, it puts holiness on the opposite end of the spectrum from being boring and drab. Holiness is exciting. Holiness is attractive. It's invigorating. But it takes eyes of faith to see it like that. And with the eyes of faith, what happens is that definitions get flipped, that, that it's not holiness that's boring. It's anything that's not holy, anything that's not from God becomes boring. Because those things don't have the, the same sort of potential. Become so small and, and minuscule. It's just kind of blah. Church, I'm praying that God would give us the eyes of faith to see the glory of holiness. And give us an appetite for it. Now, I need to clarify here because holiness and happiness are not opposites. I'm not, I'm not trying to pit them against each other. It's not one or the other. Like, you have to choose between being holy or being happy. That's not the case at all. In fact, Pastor Tim Keller says, on the far side of holiness, you find true happiness. This is a happiness that's more than your team winning or your kids listening and obeying or sleeping through the night. This is a true happiness that is deep and secure and unfading and only intensifies over time, regardless of the circumstances you face. It is just as buoyant in the face of sorrow as it is in times of joy. Now, 
in the gospel. This is the happiness that we find, the true happiness. This is, this is why Christians sing on Sunday mornings. Right? It's not just because we like music and it's a good way to fill up some time. Right? We sing in response, in, in a joyful response to what God has done. That Jesus has saved us. He is sanctifying us. That he will make us glorious to a completely fulfilled state one day. And that makes us happy. Now, I need to press on this a little bit. Because sometimes, you know, I don't have eyes in the back of my head, so I can't see what's going on behind me. But you, you guys might look at me while I'm lifting my hands, I'm moving around, and I'm seeing it. And you might think I'm just weird, and I'm cool with that. But, but I think that there's something about that expression of, of lifting hands and clapping and shouting to the Lord that, that demonstrates that, that we are filled with joy from our salvation. That I think it's healthy for churches to express together and not be weirded out by it. I think some of us need to kind of check our, our whiteness at the door. Right? Maybe get a little, more, a little more charismatic than we care to be. Because what we sing about these words that come up on the screen are joy-producing. That was a rabbit trail. But you see here, in the same way that the gospel makes us holy and happy, the purpose of marriage is to make us holy and happy as well. See, God, marriage is God's means for transformation and enjoyment. And, and, and the context in which that transformation and enjoyment happens is the context of friendship. I think that's the most commonly overlooked thing about marriage, right? Are you best friends with your spouse? And I think for the marriages where, where that's not the case, that, that's why marriage can be so hard. You get two people who can't tell if they're on the same team. You're looking at the person. Are you for me or are you against me? But the best marriages, the most godly marriages exist between two people of the opposite sex who are best friends. Not just life partners, but best friends. Now let this be a lesson for the single people in the room because you might be going about dating all wrong. You're trying to find the hottest, most attractive person that's silly enough to choose you. And let me tell you, if that's, your, if that's your method for finding a spouse, gravity and time will only disappoint you. Someone say amen. There we go. I love it. I love it. But if you're looking for somebody that you love to be with, somebody who loves being with you, you're going to have a very... Encouraging marriage. 
to be married to your best friend, to live with your best friend. Now, let me tell you this for the single people. It's way easier for a good friendship to transform and to become a a romantic relationship than it is the other way around. Right? If you're looking for the hottest person in the room and you just like are attracted to them and that's the one thing that's compelling you toward them and you get to know them and they're just kind of like garbage, like that's going to be a really hard relationship. Now, I, I railed on King Solomon last week for, for all of his extramarital affairs, but this week I'm going to come back to him and, and use something that he said in, in Song of Songs because God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. And despite all of the stupid stuff that he did, aside from Jesus, Solomon is known as the wisest man to ever live. And I think part of wisdom is knowing when you've messed up and you own your mistakes that there's a sense of self-realization and you move out of it by God's grace. Now in Song of Songs, King Solomon is speaking about his first love, right? The wife of his youth, right? The chick that he got married to the first time. And he looks at her in chapter 5 or 16 of Song of Songs and says, This is my beloved, and this is my friend. See, one of the reasons why Solomon's life got so messed up was because he neglected the friendship of his first marriage. And Ecclesiastes, we just finished preaching that a while back. But there he that's where wisdom sets in. He realizes that all of those other relationships were fleeting. They were, they were unsatisfying to pursue other women. He, he got caught with the, the, the pursuit of attraction. And in his late years, that became a huge regret for him. And so Solomon links this marriage, this love, this beloved to being a friend. So we need to ask, what, what, is, what is friendship? Right? That's a word. I don't know. It seems like maybe it's dated in a way. But, but what exactly is it? It's common language. But what are, we, what are we saying when we talk about friendship? C.S. Lewis says that friendship is where two, two people look at each other and say, you too? I thought I was the only one. See, friendship starts with some sort of common interest, some, some shared trait, And let me tell you, it's usually more than this is my favorite bar to go to. It's something, some common interest. And it might seem basic, but when you think about it, this is really profound. Because what happens here in friendship that has a common interest, a relationship that is side by side, shoulder to shoulder oriented, develops. And a side-by-side relationship is necessary before you move into a face-to-face relationship. Now, the temptation is that if you're single, then you're tired of being single. You just want to jump right in, right, to the face-to-face. Like, who are you? I want to date you. I want to get married to you. It comes at it with an intensity. And let me tell you, that's creepy. 
right? You, you sit down on your first date and you tell, I think I'm going to marry you. They're going to be like, okay, later. And I think that's even true of friendships in general, right? The person comes up to you and it's like, we've we got to be friends. I want to be your best friend. That person seems needy. Right? They, they seem like, I'm, I'm going to guess, they probably don't have friends. They probably don't know how to make friends in that way. Right? It's just like zero to 60 in half a second. But friendship is, is made, uh, think of crock pot, not microwave. See, real friendships happen when two people share a common interest that isn't the other person. Right? Maybe, maybe that's coffee or books or travel. When my wife and I started dating, that was Lost, the, the TV show. Right? We'd spend hours watching that, and honestly, I hated it. But the way friendships develop is through shared experiences when moving toward the same goal. In our, in our case, it was trying to figure out what the heck was going on in that TV show. See, this is why you hear teammates talk about the relationship that they have with one another as like being brothers. Or, or if you've served in the military, the, the guys that you've done uh, tours with, they're, they're your brothers. There's this relationship that you have, this bond that, that, that's created and having a shared goal. Now, this is significant and this is why Christians must only date and marry other Christians because you have to be united in your life goal, which is to follow Jesus. Because as disciples, we are following Jesus as he is sanctifying us until the day that he makes us dazzling, sets us in, in clothes of white that are glorious in splendor in our future glory. Now listen, this means that for the Christian, it, it, if one of the cardinal directions was replaced on a compass and Godward was put there, that means that every Christian in their life, no matter what they do or where their life takes them, the direction of their life is Godward. That's, that's the true north for Christians. It's where they're headed. But for a non-Christian, for a not yet believer, no matter how noble their life goals might be, they're not Godward. Their, their hearts aren't aimed at God. And when you think about how could two people walk and develop a deep and lifelong friendship when they're headed in two different directions? Think of it, even if it's just off by one or two degrees, right? You, you take one or two degrees and, and multiply that times infinity, eventually they're going to be miles and miles apart when at the beginning it was just a couple centimeters, Now, people tend to push back on this, and they think, well, you know what, I'm going to date them. I want to lead them to the Lord, so I'm going to date them. You know, that's, that's called missionary dating. It, it's not helpful. It, it actually causes a lot of dysfunction. And what happens if that person never comes to believe? It can, 
not only that, but just think of that, that, that other person who maybe doesn't believe yet, like, to feel like they're a project, create some dysfunction in the relationship. And then I realize that there are probably people in the room that are married to unbelievers. Whether you married an, uh, knowingly married an unbeliever or you came to faith after you were married in some whatever context that might be, but you find yourself married to an unbeliever. And listen, this is not a, something where you, you say, okay, I, I need to separate. That's not the case. See, God has put you in that relationship. Even if it's, you've gotten there by sinful means, God has put you in that relationship for something that is ultimately good, to love that person, to, to show that person through your love and sacrifice and friendship what Jesus is like, and to pray for them. And know, pray knowing that God can change their heart. When the, the baseline for friendship is in place, when you have the common goal as Christians, right? We're, we're heading to Jesus. There's a sense of a future glory that awaits us. This, in this relationship, your heart starts saying something. It starts saying, I want in on that. When you see what God is doing in that other person, when you see their potential unfold and you say to yourself, I want to be part of that. That, that excites me. I had a friend say once, uh, a Christian friend or, or a spiritual friendship or a spiritual friend is someone who is committed to God's purpose being accomplished in your life. Now, if you're a Christian, if your friend is a Christian, there is no doubt, there's no mystery as to what God is aiming to accomplish in your life. In, in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, the apostle John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and, and what will be has not yet appeared. In other words, the way we are now is not the way that we're always going to be. But we know that when he, that's Jesus, appears, we shall be like him. Because we, shall be seen, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. C.S. Lewis has a, an awesome illustration here in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. And God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps you can't understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house out in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of throwing out a new wing here, putting an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace, a palace he intends to come and live in himself. 
See, this is where Christians are headed. This is, this is the goal of Christian marriage. And a Christian friendship is helping one another know, serve, love, and resemble God in deeper and truer ways throughout time. And it's to do this eagerly and joyfully. Really, when you think about it, this is the basic concept for discipleship. Helping people to become who they already are in Christ. And so Christian friendship is more than just having a, a good time together while you listen to Caleb. It, it's a mutual commitment to holiness. Proverbs 27 talks a lot about friendship in this sense. He says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Right? Not wounded to injure, but wounded to heal. Ephesians 4 talks about the dynamics within the church, speaking the truth in love to one another. We grow up into Jesus Christ. Having a yes man as a spouse, somebody who always agrees, somebody who, who avoids conflict, somebody who, who showers you with undeserved praise is very helpful for you to grow up into who you are already in Christ. Because at this point, they become an enabling partner, not a loving friend. Proverbs 27 goes on, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens the other. See, a, a healthy marriage will have sparks. There will be conflict. When Michelangelo was asked how he made the statue of David, it was always easy. I just chiseled away all the pieces that weren't him. Think about it. A slab of marble? How'd you make David? Oh, I just took away the pieces that weren't David. Easy. See, this is what a Christian friend helps accomplish in our life. They, they see the real you that God has created, and they, they lovingly chip away at the pieces that aren't you. In a very real sense, real friendship, true friendship requires confrontation because sometimes we can't see ourselves clearly. That you need someone in your life who, who loves you enough to confront you, to, to tell you, hey, this is what I think God is doing in you. And maybe you don't see that right now, but I, I see it. Now, doing confrontation in a healthy way can be really hard. And I think Becca and I, we, we struggle with this to some degree. She, she doesn't like conflict because she's a nine on the Enneagram. She just wants everybody to be happy in the room. She's so sweet. She doesn't want to offend anybody. And I don't like confronting her because she's so sweet. Sometimes it feels like even the smallest confrontation can cut her to the heart and, and hurt her when I don't intend to hurt her. And so there's times where we sort of sidestep this confrontation that, that's really necessary for us to have in, in, in a marriage. And you might have different reasons for avoiding confrontation with your spouse. Maybe you lack uh, this sense of real love and why you want to love and bless and, and help that person become who they are in Christ. But if you're married, you don't just get to not do that. 
You don't get to call a truce with your spouse and say, you know what, you can get away with this if you let me get away with that. If you never confront anything in your marriage. Listen, and you don't even get to say, well, I tried it and it didn't work, so I, you know, it's in God's hands. Yeah, it is in God's hands. You're the chisel in God's hands. He's, he's working to create a, a masterpiece, and he wants you to be in on that, that process. To, to avoid confrontation is unloving. Because confrontation with God's purpose, with his vision for that person in mind, is the most loving thing that you can do. And if you find a friend that will do that, hold on to that person. Listen, there's going to be a temptation or a time in your life where maybe... The wounds of a friend don't feel like faithful, and it might not be. But there's going to be times when, when your friend has good intentions and they try to say something that's hard and loving and you just get offended and you just want to take your ball and go home. Don't do that. You'll miss out on one of the greatest gifts that God has given you in having a real friend. So if you love your spouse You'll confront them. You'll be to them the chisel that chips away what isn't the masterpiece that God is committing. So what you have to think as a spouse, what are the pieces that are still attached to, to that person I love that, that's not really them? Where are, the, where are their fears? Where are their insecurities? Where's their lack of faith, right? Are, are they having a hard time engaging in community because they're afraid of, of preserving their own image? Right, speak truth. Are they, are they not living on mission because they're too ashamed of the gospel? Speak truth. Do you see priorities in their life that are mixed up? Are they disengaged from the kids? Can you see places where idols, things that they love more than Jesus, are, are really running the show in their life? Right? Speak up. Speak in truth. Now, the way that you confront someone is just as important as the manner in which you confront them. See, in marriage, we confront as friends, not enemies. You, you look at that person and you say, I'm saying this because I love you. I am for you, so don't come at conflict like you are a wrecking ball, right? Just think of the tragedy that David would have experienced if, if uh, Michelangelo's main tool was a wrecking ball. Wouldn't work out well. And the imagery, the gentle imagery that Paul uses in, in verses 25 and 26 is, is washing. And this word of washing is best understood as bathing. It's, it's a very intimate thing. And, and usually when we bathe, we, we only bathe ourselves, right? It's kind of a one-man show. But here, Paul is saying that the spouses see each other in a way that no one else does. That they see the other person, they see them for who they are, their, their real self, their blemishes, as well as the things that are already glorious about them. And husbands especially, he says, we wash it away with the water of the word. We, we remind our spouse of the gospel, of who they are, where their identity is, and the future 
glory that awaits. Now listen, I'm wrapping up here. I'm a closet CrossFitter. I I don't like to tell people because usually they're like, really, you CrossFit? (laughs) And and I'm not here to promote an agenda here. But I just want to tell you, this week in in one of our workouts was rope climbs. You climb up a a, a rope that's like 15 feet or whatever. And, And when you do rope climbs, what happens, your shin gets torn up by the rope. Even if you've got some sort of protection, right? You're gonna get a a rope burn or you're gonna get torn up, you're gonna get some scratches. And it makes showering after the workout very painful, right? Maybe, maybe you know, you've had scratches from doing yard work. I used to throw hay in the summer when I was a kid, so you, you do it with shorts, and you're going to have a ton of scratches on your legs. And getting in the shower with those scratches is very painful. But washing and cleaning those sores is necessary for avoiding infection. It's, it's, and it's really a balance here of being careful not to scrub too hard and make things worse, but also of, of doing it too lightly so nothing really happens. So the kind of clean that happens is a good kind of pain, a, a cleansing sort of pain. And that's the image that washing in marriage should carry, this gentle, nourishing touch to cleanse, to make better. And in this way, marriage ought to be the most intimate relationship in your life. That, in fact, nobody should know you better than your spouse. That, that with your spouse lies the closest of all connections between two best friends. And it's, it's based on complete vulnerability. So that you can be you and they can be them. And you can let your guards down where there's no secrets, no, no pretending, no hiding. Just sort of a completely open and exposed life. In a way where your souls are intertwined. And this is what happens. This is the shift from side to side or shoulder to shoulder to face to face. When you know and are known. This intimate. And what's inevitably going to happen is that, that physical intimacy will follow in a relationship like this, right? Because physical intimacy is doing with your bodies what you've already done with your soul and everything else. This is why we say sex is for marriage. And so when you look at marriage, marriage isn't, marriage isn't primarily romance. See, mar- marriage is primarily friendship that is spiked with romance. The priority is on friendship. Now, let me just ask you, as I'm closing here, how would your marriage change if you understood marriage as spiritual friendship to future glory? How how would your dating life shift? What would you look for? What different thing would you look for if that were the case? How are you and your spouse or are you and your spouse best friends or are you just roommates? Are Are you working to foster intimacy what if, what if you saw your job in marriage as primarily lovingly and graciously chiseling away the pieces of that person that are still clinging on? To be, to be this kind of friend, you have to learn it from somewhere. It doesn't just come naturally. It doesn't just pop up in your life. 
The only way you can be this kind of friend to your spouse is if you've seen how Jesus has done this for you, how he has been this kind of friend for you, that he's, he's looked at you, that he's known you, that he's been intimate, he's pursued you. Then what he's done to, to gently cleanse and nourish and, and cherish you. See, the intimacy and vulnerability and friendship of marriage points us to the union and intimacy that we have with Jesus, where we are fully known for who we are, where he, Jesus looks at us and he's not disillusioned by who we are. He, he looks at us and he sees the ugly bits of sin and the filth, and with a steady, loving hand, he's massaging the dirt out of the source. He's washing us clean. Friends, God deals gently with us like this because he was tough on Jesus. If you really knew how deep sin ran in your heart, God would be twisting and pulling and yanking probably come to the end of himself and say, you know what, this is a lost cause. But God looks at us through, through Jesus, who, who Jesus goes to the cross and he takes the ultimate cleansing of death for us. That God was tough with him so he could be gentle and, and tender with us. And friends, we need to understand for, for a marriage that's going to last, for, for a marriage that's going to be a true and better, a, t- a true friendship, we need to understand that Jesus is the true and better friend. That he is the perfect spouse who laid down his life to save ours. That he, he sees all of our sin, all of our messiness, and still died for us. And he is working to make us beautiful. See, he loves us not because we are lovely. He loves us because he's making us lovely. It's by his love we're becoming lovely. And one of the the means of grace that God has given his people to remind us of this work is the Lord's table. So today we come to remember the work Christ has done to sanctify us, to save us, to cleanse us. And, And one day he points forward to the future day where we'll be with him in glory. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for giving us the true and better spouse, one who lays down his life for us, one who is a deep, true friend. Father, I pray that out of experiencing Christ that you would enable us to love our spouses, to love our future spouses, to pursue a deep friendship. Will you be glorified in our relationships, Father? It's your name we pray, amen.